Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from the C21 team about the return of the LA screenings and Content LA amid the rise of US studio-led streamers and a slump in Netflix subscribers. Element Pictures founder Ed Guinea and producer Emma Norton on the company's move from film to TV and becoming part of Fremantle and Big Light Productions founder and chief executive Frank Spotniks and creative director Emily Feller on a new deal with Marty Adelstein's Tomorrow Studios. The US upfronts and LA screenings in May traditionally set the agenda for American broadcast networks and many around the world as international TV buyers descend on Hollywood to catch first glimpses and score pickups of the hottest new shows. The significance of these events was already changing before the pandemic, but the acceleration in consumer uptake of streaming over the past few years, combined with the studio's own direct-to-consumer pivot, means a very different landscape for execs attending this year. C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks and North American Editor Jordan Pinto spoke to me about the return of the LA screenings and C21's own Content LA within the context of increasingly warehouse studio content, a dive in Netflix subscribers and the rise of AVOD. Welcome everybody, Ed, uh, Nico, Jordan, great to have you here today on the show, thanks for joining us. Big occasion, obviously, uh, the LA screenings back 2022 for the first time since the pandemic, since since 2019, in fact. So, um, you know, how's everybody feeling about being there? Ed, you've been on the circuit for a number of years. Nico, you too. Jordan, uh, your first time representing C21 as our North American editor. So, um, yeah, give us your your, your sort of sense as to uh, how things are going to be this year and how you're feeling about it. Thanks, John. Um it, it does make me think uh, how the um, not just the LA screenings, but the sort of demand for US programming and the role of US programming on the international market has changed. You know, like as you say, it's the first real LA screening since 2019. I've been going since 2005 or something like that. And and back then it was very much a sort of um, you know competing for those top shows, people paying top dollar for American content, and everyone needed American content. You know, and back in those days, it was largely in prime time around the world. You know, um, fast forward to now, and um, you know that's it's very different. You know that, that there used to be sort of lots of angst about shows not making it into mid-season if because they were it was very much an acquisitions-led sort of part of the business. But now all that content is ring-fenced for the US streamers that are owned by those very same studios. So it's a very interesting snapshot of how the inter- international business has changed with regard to demand for US programming. I mean, the sort of the, the changing demand for US programming. I mean, preceded the, the the pivot into uh, streaming by the studios. Um, there was lots of factors to explain why that was the case. Uh, you know, whether you know the the move into local production around the world changed the international networks' relationship with US content. You know, we saw the demise of output deals and volume deals and all this kind of thing. And and at the same time, US content did become more American and, and less universal in its approach. So this is continuing that sort of change demand for US programming and just things like the US production cycle and the emphasis on the fall season became less and less relevant for not just the international market but domestic too you know cables moved into you know 24/7 you know 12 month programming year round programming long long ago um and i think the, the the move to streaming not just by the US studios but by everyone around the world has exacerbated that to the extent now that people are going to LA probably not necessarily to to buy US shows in the same way they did 10 or 15 years ago but to sort of um talk about co-development deals with the u.s studios co-production deals with the u.s studios uh, and so i think that that whole context of everyone waiting for for what's going to get picked up in the upfronts in new york and then watching the pilots with bated breath in a darkened room at the week later and and sort of bidding on them in this sort of artificial sort of uh, uh environment that those days are long gone and it was long before streaming that did that but streaming has has changed that to the point of no return now nowadays people are around the world are much more interested in either uh, local content or uh, content that from other parts of the world that streaming has uh, cast a spotlight on there's been a lot of data recently about sort of changing demand in europe uh, and uh, you know that the, the streaming's just just the latest incarnation of that okay um uh, just turning to nico for for a second uh, your first time back at the screenings as well so um you know a few years on post pandemic 
week. Obviously, very exciting to be heading back to the US. But as Ed says, the market's changed very much. It has, yeah. And um, when I was there in 2019, it was all against the backdrop of the dispute between the Writers Guild and the talent agencies. And obviously, that has you know been you know since been to some degree or other sorted. Uh, but the backdrop to that was the friction between tech and the the traditional ways of Hollywood and the and the new ways of doing things that the tech companies were were bringing in. And obviously, you know, three years on, that's just more more apparent than ever. It just seems to be a constant tussle between tech and Hollywood, and both kind of trying to adopt the other's way of doing things as quickly as possible. And um, yeah, it's interesting looking back at some of the predictions that were made in 2019 obviously no one was predicting a global pandemic uh, but people were predicting about the subscription model and how much that was going to take hold I guess you know with a with a focus on streaming and no one obviously knew to such an extent how true that was going to be as we were all at home um, you know subscribing to as many services as possible to keep us from thinking about the day-to-day realities of life in 2020 and 2021 um, but now it feels like there's been a shift the other way and we're coming out the other end of that and obviously we're seeing Netflix's problems in relation to its numbers of subscribers and the rise and rise of AVOD services and the ad supported model which really seems to be showing yeah signs of huge life and um, it's interesting seeing because obviously that's not to say traditional TV is is coming back but that more traditional way of watching TV with ads that a lot of people thought was was uh, was dead is definitely alive and kicking. Jordan what about you as well the first time as I say representing C21 at the screenings and uh, you're playing a key part as well in, in Content LA, our own event, which is also taking place. So um, yeah, how are you feeling about things? Yeah, very much uh, looking forward. Just picking up on some of the points Nico made there about the, the tussle between between tech and Hollywood. Uh, actually, Nielsen recently um, released a report and it was kind of talking about viewership on the streaming services, the um, traditional linear networks um, in the most recent broadcast year. And Netflix was miles ahead of everyone else. But then in second, third, fourth, and fifth place was the traditional linear network. So it goes Netflix and CBS, then NBC, then ABC, then Fox, and then the other streamers coming. So then you have like Disney Plus, Prime Video, and Hulu, and below those, just in terms of what people are watching. So I would imagine that the traditional US linear networks will have a bit of their swagger back um, with Netflix and Disney both backing away from the SVOD only subscription model. Um, I think we're seeing the end of that kind of SVOD only um, way of doing streaming. And I think that is kind of an admission that advertising is pretty key to the whole model for television. And so for Netflix to get above 202 million subscribers, they clearly, from their uh, password crackdown, they clearly think that um, having an advertising supported model is is key to that growth. So we'll always say that TV is a kind of, uh, or time is a flat circle. And um, it seems that the model seems to be coming now whereby Netflix is starting to almost do the things that the TV networks have done all along. Um, and I think there are, there, you know, there are reports circulating about, well, Disney Plus is certainly going to start doing some live, uh, they're putting uh, Dance of the Stars live uh, or as a live US offering um, as of next year. And there's rumors that Netflix are also going to be experimenting with live as well. So I think looking in, at it, also things, I think when you're thinking of momentum, the US networks certainly have that on their side at the moment as some of the streaming services kind of start to imitate what some of linear TV has been doing all along. Let's just bring it back to the buyers for a second, Ed. You know, obviously the the, the streaming uh, landscape and the changes that that has brought are, are going to have uh, uh, huge implications for the availability of programming this time. So what's the point in some ways, I guess, of, 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 of buyers uh, heading to LA to see the US studios? There's plenty of other uh, vendors there as well also. But, um, you know, how really has that landscape changed from the buyer's point of view? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the question that a lot of people will be asking as they get on their plane to uh, to LA you know what's the purpose of the LA screenings these days um it's changed an awful lot you know the sort of the idea of racing to see what the new pilots are and, and bid on them is 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 an old old model that, that's not around anymore not not just because the uh, the studios are keeping them i think the studios are keeping them lar- largely because you know the demand around the world has changed uh, and, and you know they used to be able to do volume deals and output deals 
deals and earn loads and loads of money with that. But now that market changed. And in a sense, they were forced into sort of setting up their own channels around the world and, and did that. And, you know, I think the idea of competing with your clients, which is what the US studios are, are doing now to a great degree uh, with, you know, parking their streaming tanks on the lawn of, of all of their clients around the world. And um, they've been doing that a long time with cable, with pay channels. That, I mean, they've been doing it with linear free-to-air channels too, you know. Uh, so that I don't think that necessarily is is, is a new thing. Uh, the, the extent of it and then the way they're doing it perhaps is is different, and the amount of shows that they're they're taking off the market is uh, is 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 obviously different. But I think the way that the yellow screenings are evolving is we we saw a little bit of it the last time around in, in nineteen, um, but we'll see a lot more of it now. I think the content that people will screen at the yellow screenings is not the sort of the, the stuff that's just been picked up for a series at the upfront in New York. It's the stuff that's that's the fruit of all the studios, co-production deals around the world, local production operations around the world. So, for instance, Sony, they, they're screening as well as some Fox shows and things. They've got Brazilian dramas. They've got UK dramas. They've got loads of international co-pros on their screening slate for 22. So I think that's the trend that we're going to see. The LA screenings is not just anymore about the shows that have been picked up for the fall season, but it's it's all the fruits of those studios is international activities um you know i remember going to some la screenings events a couple of years ago and there was turkish shows being screened there was you know lots of uk co-productions that kind of thing i think we'll just see more of that you know nbc universal has got loads of aussie shows because they got loads of production arms down there you know so so i think uh, i think that's the way it's going to evolve and and it, and it suits it suits the needs of the hollywood studios now because they've got production assets around the globe and they need buyers to buy them you know you know the the old way of doing things has changed and the same goes for lots of screens events now it's it's not just an acquisitions led event it's moving into co-dev it's moving into co-production as those studios that are behind the events do that you know the business is evolving and you know you can't you can't park back to it being just an acquisitions business anymore this obviously as well an event for the independent studios as well the independent distributors yeah there's that's one thing that we haven't talked about but i think there's a real upside a potential upside for the, the sort of the u.s distributors and producers that aren't affiliated to a streamer or aren't part of a big studio that has a streamer um, because some networks around the world will still want a bit of Americana, maybe not in prime time, maybe not on the main channel, but on one of their streaming services or a, or a, a, a day part that isn't prime time. Uh, and if they can't get it from the studios for those strategic reasons we've discussed, then they might come to the, the, the smaller indies. And I think there's a lot of optimism in the, those independent providers of, of US programming that aren't part of the big studios. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, optimism among those guys. There's been plenty of talk from all of you about uh, the shift, I guess, from subscription streaming services to to AVOD. You know, Tubi is among the companies uh, that, that's represented at Content LA, for example. So, you know, the rise of those AVOD services in amongst a market which was originally driven by the the broadcast networks, the advertiser-funded broadcast networks. How does that change the game? Um, yeah, I think it changes the game significantly, um, especially as these AVOD services particularly um, the Roku channel and 2B, especially as their influence grows. Both both of them, are, in addition to expanding their original content offerings, they, they are licensing content. I think this could be an interesting play screenings because there's a chance that you might see some of the AVOD players um, starting to make moves for some of the bigger um, or the, some of the bigger budgeted TV series um, that perhaps originally would have, would have ended up elsewhere. So uh, I think AVOD having a bigger influence and um, I, I think they're, they're certainly trying to uh, encroach is the wrong word, but uh, trying to hold own in both the acquisitions front, but also in the originals. And this whole event is is coming, as we say, with Netflix having had a, a massive sort of dent to its uh, results just, just recently, missing subscriber targets and um, sending sort of shockwaves through the industry. Um, Nico, you know, you touched on that a little bit. How do, how do you think that's going to play out um, in terms of, you know, I suppose the confidence that maybe the US studios have in those subscription models, which uh, a lot of them have been launching with. Yeah, I think it's a classic case of what goes up must come down. And, you know, it's, it was a pretty much unchallenged kind of five-year run, maybe more of positivity broadly around Netflix and in terms of how it's shaking up the market and an innovator and kind of the, the company to beat, basically. And now, yeah, there's definitely been a, a shift in terms of how people talk about Netflix and, 
you know, if you even look at an example and it's not particularly linked to the LA screenings, but their animation output, there was at one point and it wasn't so long ago that Netflix was kind of a kind of beacon of hope around the animation industry. And and now that they've had to cancel quite a few shows at very, very short notice with studios, you know, having the outside studios that were employed to animate those shows suffering as a result, then, you know, that goodwill has kind of evaporated quite quickly, potentially. So yeah, there's a definite change in how people, I think, will be talking about Netflix. And I think Jordan was mentioning earlier about, yeah, that will mean the US studios will be feeling a lot more bullish because obviously they have, now they have their streaming services because back in 2019, HBO Max, Peacock, Paramount Plus, as it's now called, and has replaced CBS All Access, they didn't exist, but now they do. So those, you know, more traditional US companies now have AVOD and SVOD to kind of launch their shows. And I think there's definitely a sense that a mix is a positive. And you mentioned obviously the fact that HBO Max didn't exist, um, you know, just a, a few years back, but and, and and talked about sort of Paramount and, and CBS All Access as well. I mean, the whole landscape of the studios has completely changed with all of the mergers and acquisitions activity that there's been. Warner Media didn't exist, let alone Warner Media Discovery now. So, um, you know, Disney, Fox, I mean, the whole landscape has, has completely changed. So that's going to have a major, major impact as well on, on this year's screenings. It will, yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's hard keeping track of the name. I think it's it's a Warner Bros uh, discovery, as it's now known. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're seeing job losses there, big execs, you know, high profile execs in LATAM and internationally uh, leaving or being cold. Yeah, it's a brutal business. And so we're seeing the results of that. And obviously Warner Bros. Discovery, I think it's kind of touting itself as the the home of entertainment and the kind of the place where storytellers should go to with their stories. And I suppose the timing is, timing is quite good because obviously they're, they're, they're doing that at a time where Netflix is kind of having a wobble in terms of its relationship with talent. And I think even you know, one of the, the big things over the past few years that we've been writing about is the importance of talent and those talent deals. Ed, what's your take on the uh, all the M&A activity and the way that that sort of completely changed the landscape of uh, of Hollywood? I think it's interesting in the sense that, um, you know, back in the day, Warner Bros. as a studio was, um, it, it played on its um, its sort of independence uh, and in, 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 an, in an era of vertical integration, it would say, you know, if, if, if you're a talent, you come to us, we'll make sure you're show goes to the the most suitable network in the US you know rather than um, being tied to any particular network themselves uh, and now that's changed completely <laughs> because they can say well it will it will go to HBO Max and that's the end of that so um i think i think it's 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 caused a shift in the raison d'etre for a lot of these studios a lot of them in the in the back in the day would would think of themselves as sort of independent of, of the network and and be able to sort of uh, find the best home but so now they've all got their own home. So that, that whole argument has changed. I mean, the vertical integration thing has been, been happening for a long time, but now it's just, as I say, it's got this streaming front to it and, and it's become much more global. Sony's an interesting one, though. They've sort of stayed out of this streaming war to, to a very great extent, other than actually kind of, you know, selling shovels in the gold rush, as I think one of their execs put it in a C21 TV special that's uh, on the site now, uh, looking ahead to the screenings. Um, you know, they've, they've very much sort of stood aside from from this uh, this tussle among the studios to be the sort of market leader in the streaming sector and opted to license and and, and produce shows. You know, how do you think that's going to play out for them in the future? I think the the arms dealer model that um, Sony has been talking about for the last few years is certainly seems extremely smart as maybe the the total total addressable market for streaming. Um, I think for a long time people were talking about whether streaming service could have what, one billion subscribers or even half a billion subscribers. But Netflix kind of stalling on 222 million. I think they've realized that maybe each streaming service isn't going to build up quite as many millions of subscribers as they thought. And it's been really expensive to produce content and masses of it in order to populate their streaming services. But they're not yet recognizing as much revenue um, from those streaming services because they don't have subscribers yet. So when you have a, a company like Sony, which has said from the beginning that they, they have no interest in maybe a populist streaming service, um, they, they do have some 
some uh, niche, uh, like anime focused, a uh, niche anime focused streaming business. But in terms of wide global facing streaming service, I think they're starting to look quite smart now because they can just sell to the bidder for for all of their projects. And yes, I, I think the Sony execs are saying at the moment that the project they would sell to linear networks, that everything is still selling really well. And they also are now producing and working with all top tier talent across the world on maybe more streaming focused shows. And um, certainly sales are doing extremely well, according to them. Something else to add, John. Um, uh, another interesting dimension to this is the sort of the streamers and in the US that aren't yet international. Um, I think if one of the things that's happened over the last year or two is uh, a lot of European companies in particular are looking to the US for co-production finance, but they don't want to give away all the rights in order to get that finance. So they, they're, they're focusing on you know companies like Topic, which are uh, you know, North America focused. They're looking at companies like Spectrum for the same reason, so they can actually co-produce with these guys and still retain rest of the world. You know, as if, if you co-produce with someone like Netflix or, you know, that's that's quite a, a big fight to, to try and get the rest of the world. Uh, whereas if you if you look at companies like Spectrum or, or Roku or Topic or those guys, Topic's doing an awful lot of business in Scandinavia, co-producing with those partners for this very reason, because they don't necessarily want the rest of the world. That's that's And that's where people like Sony are coming in. If you look at Sony's slate at the moment, they've got a lot of co-productions with people like Spectrum and Roku, because there's the rest of the world for them to pick up and sell at places like the LA screenings. Um, so I think I think that's where that's where Sony's been smart. It's positioned itself as a sort of uh, somewhere to to fill that gap. And if you, if you've got a co-production that has still got rest of the world rights to market, then uh, companies like Sony are, are, are in, you know in good position to pick those up. You think that if we are seeing a sort of topping out of the popularity of some of these subscription services, do you think that perhaps that might work in favour of international buyers? Might some of the studios who have been investing, as you say, Jordan, lots and lots of money in increasingly expensive TV productions, if, if the costs of those productions are not being amortised through their subscription services, and, and Avod might pick up some of the, the losses there though, but might they decide to take a more flexible approach and, and perhaps return and, and, and sort of licence some of those programmes out more widely? Yes, I think so. Um, I don't know over what time frame, so I think as it stands right now, probably for the next 12 months, especially as services like Paramount um, and Disney Plus start really moving fully global. I know but Paramount Plus has big expansion plans over the next uh, six months in uh, in Europe and Asia. Same with Disney Plus. Once they once they have gone through that process, I think we could see their licensing model begin to change. I, I think it'll depend on how many new subscribers they were able to attract when they move into these new markets. If it is appearing that they could be doing a lot more uh, in terms of generating licensing revenue from um, starting to sell some of their shows outside of the group. Uh, I think we could certainly see a shift in how, well, for, for the last three years, it seems that the studio groups have been have been holding back that content and keep it within their studio group. I think in the next 12 months, that could start to shift. We'd start to see people kind of go back slightly more toward this kind of arms dealer. Um, we will sell anything to the highest bidder kind of mentality in order just to maximize the revenues. Um, so, so Nico, um, you're obviously um, getting ready to, to get on with the job of, of, of covering the whole event. So, um, you know, what's going to be your your focus there? And, you know, tell us a little bit about the uh, the buyers and um, the things that you've got set up. So as well as covering the content LA sessions, which I'm sure are going to uh, throw up some really interesting points of debate, I'm kind of going to be going from hotel to hotel and trying to speak to international buyers kind of after they've come away from the screenings and uh, are getting ready to, to go onto their evening's entertainment, try and catch them and um, get their takes on the shows, what's available, what shows are been working for them in their well schedules seems a bit quaint but you know on their services um and with their audiences and yeah it's going to be it's always a bit of a, a lottery really in terms of who's available um who's willing to speak because obviously there's an element of them having to keep their cards close to their chests as buyers um but there's usually one show that that usually kind of pops out as you know one that execs have mentioned i remember in 2019 i think it was euphoria um was just being shown uh, for the first time and and um so yeah it'll be interesting to see what shows you know in that vein pop out this year and yeah get to see some some swanky hotels which is always fun Ed, a final thought from you please yeah i think it'll be great to get back into the hollywood sunshine and and uh, get back on the lot for a lot of these buyers and sellers uh, after uh, you know three years of not being able to do that in the traditional way um 
I think there might be some surprises, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be too surprised if if you're if I was a studio sales exec to to have a meeting with uh, an international buyer and and to find that you're actually being pitched by the buyer to uh, to come in on a co-production or, or buy a US show because uh, to buy a, a European show because you know a lot of the people that are going to LA as I said earlier now they're deep they're well into their local production strategy then they they're, they're looking to sell into America as well as buy from America so the the tables may well be turned at this LA screenings. C21's Ed Waller, Nico Franks and Jordan Pinto. Fremantle recently acquired a majority stake in UK and Ireland-based Element Pictures, a company behind award-winning movies and TV shows including The Favourite and BBC Hulu's Sally Rooney adaptation Normal People. Founder Ed Guinea and producer Emma Norton spoke to Michael Pickard about straddling film and television, bringing another Rooney novel, Conversations with Friends, to screen, plus Britbox RTE co-pro The Dry, and why it was the right time to become part of Fremantle. Well, we're a film and TV drama producer based in Dublin, London and Belfast. Uh, so we span both countries. I suppose our roots are in film. Um, we're known for films like um, The Favourite and Room. I work a lot with Lenny Abramson over the years and Yorgos Lanthimos, Sebastian Lelio, Joanna Hogg, uh, among others. And we also make television. I guess we're best known for Normal People, uh, also directed by Lenny. And um, two, two projects I think we'll talk about today uh, the dry and conversations with friends. I mean, how have you managed that transition into TV over the over the last five, ten years? You know that period of of movement for you, because obviously TV has just blown up in such a huge way. How have you managed that transition? And and as people will have known from from normal people in particular, you've you've uh, <laughs> you've done it rather well. We've actually been making television for a long time uh, in Ireland, and and you know we have made a couple of things over the years uh, in the UK as well, and um, also films for television like Oh Man. Death for President, which were dramas for TV, obviously. But when it came to normal people, we, I guess, approached it like a long feature film. And I think that sort of everyone in the company, Emma, myself and all our colleagues, we all work across both film and TV. So we don't kind of make a distinction. But I guess we sort of come from film. So we approach TV as film people, if that makes sense. So it's quite director driven, creator driven. And um, I guess we're always trying to find the new, the different. We're trying to support filmmakers and creators and writers who have something unique and distinctive to say. Um, And I guess we draw, you know, we work with filmmakers from right across the world and we work right across the world as well. So although we're based in Ireland, in kind of Ireland and the UK, we we see ourselves as a very outward facing company in that sense. Definitely. And and normal people obviously came out, I guess, well, not quite the start of the pandemic, but certainly when people were, you know, in their houses in the UK for a month or two already, and and it just captured everyone's imagination. I I imagine that would have been the same regardless of whether we'd been out and about or not. I mean, what was it about that show, do you think, that did, you know, really just touch a nerve with the nation and became water cooler television without the water cooler? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the timing did uh, have a, it was a contributing factor to the way that people reacted to the show. And uh, I think that the show emotionally connected with people and probably would have done at any time, but having that kind of captive audience who were feeling perhaps a little bit vulnerable and a little bit nostalgic for a kind of maybe a sort of simpler time where all you need to worry about was whether a boy or girl loved you. (laughs) Um, I think that people really immersed themselves in it. And and that was just, it was such a delight for us to see that happening and know that the work that we've done on the show connected with people in that way because that's ultimately the the biggest end goal isn't it that you have you know people you went to school with or your auntie or your you know people that you barely know calling you up to tell you that it felt like their life so I I think it was a sort of perfect storm of of a of a particularly you know connective story which obviously Sally Rooney's book had already had that kind of impact in the literary world and then the show being you know Daisy and Paul having an incredible on-screen presence and and then the kind of state of mind of the of the nation and, and Ed, you mentioned there that you, you kind of treated it like a, a long, a longer film. I mean, in my experience, when I've spoken to, to directors, and you get kind of two sides of, of the same coin. Perhaps you get people who say, "Yeah, this is a, an eight-hour movie," or you get people who say, "This is not an eight-hour movie." And, and <laughs> I hate it when people say that because you can't just carve up a movie and it's eight episodes and, and there you go. So, I mean, is there a is there um, an approach that you you think you applied to that technique that made it work so well? I think I, I think what I mean by that is 
you know, it's not sort of, I mean, it, it obviously isn't an eight-hour movie in that sense, but I guess the way we approach it is the same way we approach making a film. The same level of care and attention to detail. And I think, obviously, one of the things that, you know, that that I think distinguish normal people is that it's a filmmaker. And I think the quality of the filmmaking is so distinctive and so elevated. And Lenny is a, you know, he's one of the best filmmakers around. And I guess it's also... You know, I think, you know, over the years, I think we probably would have observed that actually directors in television, in television drama, are often a tiny bit of an afterthought and don't quite get the respect or attention they deserve, or indeed the resources or prominently sometimes deserve. They can be a tiny bit dispensable in mainstream TV drama. And that's definitely not a way that we work. And I think that's a real point of difference for us as a company, you know, that we really kind of wrap our arms around the creators, the writers, the directors, and try and help them do their very best work rather than try and tell them what to do. I'm not saying that other people try and tell them what to do. We definitely don't try and tell them what to do. We just try and support them. Yeah, no, it was pointed out to me quite recently, actually, just hearing you say that, that streamers particularly now are are making a concerted effort to find a filmmaker to bring a show to life because they don't just want a TV show anymore. They want something filmic, unique, visually alluring, perhaps. Tell us about that relation that you have with Lenny and as we transition seamlessly into conversation with friends, how you hope to repeat the success with him that you had on Normal People with another Sally Rooney novel. I'll tell you a bit about Lenny and then I'll let Emma pick up on the conversations bit. But I am a very, I I went to college with Lenny. Um, In fact, I've known him for most of my life, known him since I was a teenager. We've been very long-standing friends and we went to college in Trinity together, which is the university that's in Normal People and that's in and also features in conversations with friends. And we started making films together in Trinity and we're both quite old. So that's a long, long time ago. And I guess we've been involved in um, everything he's done, you know, from a very early shorts to 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 conversations, which is the most recent. Um, and he's just very much, he's very much part of the company, very much a kind of a touchstone for all of us and, and a great friend to, to all of us. You know, he's become great, I mean, great friends with Emma and great friends with some of our other colleagues as well. So, yeah, he feels like a very important part of, of the element story. And, and I'll let Emma talk a bit about how conversations evolved. Yeah, I was thinking of a very cheesy thing, which was that uh, the, sort of, um, <laughs> the process of working on it was a sort of long conversation with a friend, <laughs> you know, it, I think, or a conversation with friends. And I think, I, I, and I say that in a glib way, but it is kind of, that is how working with Lenny functions, that there's a lot of talking and a lot of kind of understanding of what, he is a filmmaker kind of responds to and trying to make sure that the writers are creating scripts uh, that will that kind of will chime with what he's going to enjoy directing so there's a there's a sort of curation that goes on between the writer and the director but um I mean we you know after normal people obviously we were really keen to kind of work together uh, again and that start you know that kind of conversation started in January before normal people came out so we were all set working on conversation with friends in March 2020 when the lockdown started and so it was you know it, it was it, we learned a lot on normal people but conversation with friends was a whole new challenge and a very different set of challenges and I think that it was really helpful to the process to have kind of familiar voices in the team all working together to try and you know unpick that and that was Lenny it was Alice Marka Halloran who we've worked with a lot over the years as well and then two new writers to us but you know not to the world and um, Maeve McHugh and Susan Soonhe Stanton we were all with the editorial team trying to unpick how you get this this book which is very much about the voice of one person and their internal thoughts into an externalized drama and um you know that that was the big challenge of the show and the big difference from normal people and across that you're not just depicting her thoughts you're depicting all the other real life people around her that in the book you just have her opinion on and in the show you have to offer up as fully rounded uh you know human beings so th- it was it was intense trying to kind of crack that and i think it was the sort of constant process of the, of the of the production just trying to make sure that we could bring all of that to the screen and obviously that a huge part of that is within Alice and Oliver's performance and the other cast because taking away that inner monologue of Francis you know put a huge amount of um, focus on her ability to express things with the smallest you know with the smallest movement of an eye or a mouth or you know just expression and we were very lucky in finding an incredibly skilled actress who had done nothing 
apart from being at um, drama school. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, we were so lucky for that. Yeah, you seem to have a knack for uh, pulling sort of young actors out of Irish drama schools and uh, and making them worldwide sensations. So I, I wonder if Frances knows uh, what she's uh, waiting for. Her. <laughs> well, luckily she's she does know Paul, and um, obviously they, they they and Daisy and they have talked a little bit about the experience. I think, um, but yeah, you know, again, has to credit the Lear, the the, the drama school that they both came from with the great work that they're doing with young Irish actors because there's a whole kind of raft of people one of the actors in The Dry Adam Richardson is also a new Lear graduate and there's uh, Emmanuel Akoyo also in The Dry and Conversation with Friends again is, a, is, is part of that gang they all know each other and I mean it's really nice for them as a kind of generation of people to be seeing themselves kind of get these moments of success and it, it feels like a very lively time I think for actors having had so much success with normal people now kind of bringing the, the band back together with another Sally Rooney novel the same aesthetic you could say it's the, the Sally Rooney universe perhaps that you've kind of built on here I mean what would you just say to people you know who are maybe the, the lessons that you've learned from following a lead, following a hit show and not repeating it as such but wanting it to stand on its own without raising expectations that you are making normal people to how have you kind of combated that? I think the fact is it's inevitable that people will come conversation with friends wanting it to be normal people and it isn't normal people it's you know in the way that the two books are are very different and so there's on one level there's not much you can do to stop people's emotions from flowing out of them but I think definitely Lenny and Susie wanted to make sure that the show Susie Lavelle the DOP wanted to make sure that the show did have a different feel and did present a kind of world that felt different also the sort of side of Dublin that you see is slightly different to the kind of um normal people world there's a lot more on the north side of the city it's kind of a different angle of, of the city so I hope that people maybe will kind of start some people you know will come independently to it but I hope the kind of big normal people fans will kind of go in with an open mind and take the performances and take the, the material on its own terms and kind of respond to it in that way and then away from a Rooney novel you've, you've got The Dry which is a, an original piece by uh, a very established playwright um, in Ireland Nancy Harris who's been living in London and it was great to, to sort of have her on stage at Content London um, at a, a writer's panel that I hosted and now the show is out on, on Britbox UK and, and coming to RTE I believe uh, very yeah. soon so yeah, you might too, just yeah. tell us a bit about that one as well yeah so Nancy and I met when I first came over to Ireland I read a play of hers and really liked it and um, quite early on in being over here we were working on another project and we were keen to sort of I really, yes, we really enjoy working together and she came up with the dry about seven years ago and it just seemed such a winning idea the idea of kind of in a fun way tackling the kind of uh, relationship with alcohol that you see in Ireland and across the world but also to do an Irish family show an ensemble piece about you know a, a family sort of struggling with their own issues and at the time certainly on Irish TV that just didn't exist like a, a big warm-hearted funny Irish show we really we really wanted to make that so we you know it, we worked on it for a number of years and it was it was about finding the kind of British partnership to to kind of build the finance around but I think the lovely thing of starting from scratch was like Nancy almost knew these characters from the minute the idea popped into her head and then it was a job of crafting all of the stories for the family and you know when you're not working from a book obviously you get to go wherever you want to go and you can do the most ludicrous things and some of the fun of the dry in the kind of process of finding the scripts was about working out how far we could go into the absurd or you know quite heightened comedy without breaking the tone and that became a kind of conversation with the director Paddy Bernock as well and and that was fun because you know you don't have any kind of boundaries you can go as far as you want within the, the sort of realms of relative good taste <laughs> so so it, it was it was quite a long process but it was a fun process because every time we launched into a new episode Nancy had a raft of fun new ideas and each character has their own story so rather than these quite kind of individual centric stories in conversation with friends and normal people here you got to dive into a, a whole gang of people and play around with them and see how they reacted to each other I mean what would you say it strikes me just talking about these shows that the way you're you're making TV and, and doing these deals with multiple broadcasters involved often you know Brit 
Xbox and RTE for the dry and obviously conversation with friends, Hulu and, and normal people is Hulu, BBC Three, RTE are involved, plus however many broadcasters now around the world have bought normal people and conversation with friends. I mean, what does that tell you or tell us about the way in, the industry is at the moment, the way you need to do deals and the way you need to finance TV? Is that a, necess- a necessity that you need these broadcasters or would you say that's just uh, you've got good material and, and people want to work with you? I mean, I think it's just about finding the right fit. I mean, we've, we have a really good relationship with, with BBC. Uh, that's a really key relationship for us and, and the, the commissioning editor, Piers, and who's, who's uh, as you know, recently left Piers and his team, being people we've worked very closely with, and we hope to continue that association. And often for us, it's it actually works both for film and television. It's finding um, those kind of um, commissioners that you really connect with early on um, and working closely with them to kind of to build projects is a really exciting prospect um, and, and a very enriching one. And, and so I suppose we do gravitate towards people we know. I mean, we like working with RT. They've limited resources. We wish they invested more in Irish drama. We'd love to see them do more think it's important that they do more and and hopefully over the coming years we'll see a bit more of that but as you know there's a kind of plethora of of kind of opportunities out there now and I guess for us the most important thing is to find partners um that you know that understand the kind of DNA of what we're doing and and really help us build it so it's sort of um definitely not sort of one size fits all it's about finding the right the right people and I know um for Emma that that you know, BritBox and ITV Studios were great partners on 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 um, on the dry and equally on um, normal people and conversations. We you know we built them with BBC, but then Hulu joined on both, and they were fantastic partners. So I think it just it just depends is the truth on the project. No, absolutely. Something like the dry, which is you know a smaller budget and you know less well known property in a way, even though there was sort of huge success with normal people in the world, still had to hustle quite hard to get the money for that. That show so because I think that the truth is that you know as you were saying earlier the need for kind of filmmakers and sort of visionaries working on shows in order to kind of give them as much distinction as possible because however much success you've had there's so many other shows being made all the time and you're always in competition with all the people that are pumping out huge amounts of quality tv so <laughs> nothing comes easy you know so so we're always looking to you know build relationships and find people who as Ed said have that understanding of what we want to do I mean I, I wouldn't want to disparage Nancy at all I think she's a great writer but is there still that you know trepidation about new writers you know that you know it's her first original series is there still that thing about even though Element are obviously a very established company and they're back you're backing Nancy's work is there still some trepidation from commissioners perhaps to think oh you know a new writer you know we should tread carefully here I think I think Nancy had enough of a track record of writing in theatre and you know and she has done TV that it wasn't so much that I think uh, you know I, I think that we just we just it took us a while to find the person who read the script and went I love this and that that with an original show is what you need because often when you're pitching in a book people already know they love it you know and for, you know from the minute we started talking to peers about normal people it was really clear he loved it like he loved those characters he understood what he wanted the show to feel like whereas when you're bringing people to a new show they have to get there with you you know they have to see what the show is and some people if someone sees that really quickly because they can feel it in the script then that's probably your person otherwise if someone's sitting in front of the script reading it going might be good I don't know I can't really tell what it is I don't think that was quite the case with the dry but you have to work really hard to find the person who understands the you know what your ambition is for the show and I suppose that speaks to why IP is still so important isn't it you know if the commissioner loves it already then you've got a foot in the door haven't you I suppose so yeah I mean as we come out of the pandemic or, or move through the pandemic I mean where are the those opportunities and challenges now that you see you know moving forward for yourselves as you navigate your next projects or, or what sort of where are you looking to as you know things to take advantage of or, or avoid perhaps <laughs> I mean I think there's, a, there's obviously a lot of opportunity there but there like there are real challenges there is a real skill shortage in our industry I think that's sort of you know uh, acknowledged the world over and um, but and that and that I think you know added to general inflation in the economies um, is making filmmaking and producing television drama incredibly expensive and more and more expensive. And also, I think right 
I, you know, we are seeing a realignment of the kind of enthusiasm for new subscribers to the SVODs. And, you know, it's not surprising that post-pandemic that, you know, that the kind of rate of new subscriptions is dropping or in the case of Netflix went the wrong way. Um, so I think we're coming into choppier waters actually in the industry. And, you know, whatever the John Landgraf thing about peak TV, you know, it may be that we've just, we've actually gone over the peak and we're coming down the other side. But I think when you, when you think about that, I, I think for us at least, it's all about just doubling down on quasi and distinctiveness because I think I think people will always want to watch, you know, kind of great original authored film and television. And that's kind of what we do. So I think we feel optimistic about that, but in no way complacent. You know, I think it's, yeah. you know, all the time you have to kind of interrogate what you're doing, make sure it's the very best version of itself. And it's really rewarding, but it's also very hard work. So I guess, you know, for us, it's, I think there's, there's generally, we're not people who sort of are complacent or rest on our laurels. It's really about, you know, trying to, you know, continue to sort of raise the bar for ourselves and, and do really good work and continue to work with the very best people. And I hope that if we do all of that, we'll, we'll <laughs> sort of muddle through. No, definitely. Well, I mean, it won't have escaped people that, you know, the news that you you've joined Fremantle is, is obviously a huge you know boon for you guys so congratulations for that I mean that must just really just as you were saying that must just really supercharge your ambitions now to go further not just domestically but internationally can you talk about you know maybe what some of your next steps are have you got any projects in development you can talk about or or where do you see you know yourselves heading over the next 12 24 months we love you know we've loved our engagement with them which has been actually very intense as we've sort of come to this moment and um, so we've gotten to know them very well and love the fact that they are you know involved in you know high quality film and television which is a big overlap obviously with us um, and they do lots of other things but they certainly have a priority around that stuff um, and I think as we sort of enter, as I was saying a little earlier, maybe choppier waters, it's great to have a kind of support of a, of a much larger entity like Fremantle, who I think will, will allow us to get on what we do, but I think also, also really support it. And so we're, we're excited. And we have a lot of stuff that we talk about over the coming months, I guess. The the other drama we're working on at the moment, which is known about and out in the world, is the Gallows Pole, the Shane Meadows TV series, which um, we're doing with BBC and A24. And um, we're deep in post-production on that, but very much enjoying it. And hope to be able to share more thoughts and news with you over the coming months. Ed Guinea and Emma Norton speaking with Michael Pickard. Big Light Productions is behind series including The Man in the High Castle for Amazon, Medici for Netflix and Rai, and Leonardo for the same Italian broadcaster alongside France Television, Sony and Amazon UK. The London-based company, established by The X-Files exec producer Frank Spotniks, also co-produced the second season of hit Sky Italia drama Devils alongside Lux Vide, and has this week announced a first-look deal with Marty Adelstein's ITV Studios back Tomorrow Studios whose credits include TNT, Netflix sci-fi series Snowpiercer and 10-year-old Tom for HBO Max. Spotnitz and Big Light creative director Emily Feller spoke to Ruth Laws about these developments, the complexities of funding increasingly expensive dramas and why Netflix's slump in subscribers may just be a positive for the industry. You were involved creatively in the first season of Devils. Um, why and how did Big Light Productions become co-producers on the second season? So we were just sort of unofficially involved as friends of Lux Vide, the Italian producers uh, behind the show. Sort of uh, late in the day, they, they asked us if we'd step in and kind of help. So we did. We sort of supported in the final stages of script development. And then we were there during production, post-production. And I guess, you know, it went pretty well. <laughs> and they asked us if in season two, we would come on as co-producers and actually help conceive the season this time and be there from the start, um, which we did and which we feel you know really good about it. I think I think everybody's really happy with how the new season went. Great. Um, and what is the the focus of the second season of Devils and how does it evolve from the first season? Well, <laughs> it was quite a journey, as Emily will tell you, because uh, when we started, there was no COVID. You know, nobody had heard of COVID, and we worked on the show for quite some time. Really, I think. It it must have been six seven months. months or something. Six, seven, yeah, months. seven months. And then there was this pandemic. And uh, I think I think it was Sky who first said, gee, I, I don't think you can really do this show without addressing the pandemic because 
for those who aren't familiar, it's a financial thriller, which in itself is challenging because most people don't understand finance. So you've got to make it comprehensible and thrilling. But it also takes real news, real headlines of the recent past. And, and you understand what's going on in the financial world through the thriller plot line involving these fictitious characters. That, that's the challenge of the show. And so when the pandemic hit, we said we need to find a way to um, bring that into our storyline. So the new season actually begins in the midst of the pandemic. And then it flashes back to 2016, where the bulk of the story takes place, which is about the sort of the fracture of the China-America relationship. China and the U.S. had had this growing trading partnership for decades that sort of began to become unraveled in 2016. Um, but we were literally, I have to tell you, rewriting the show over the course of development and during production as the pandemic progressed to make sure that when it was broadcast, it was still accurate. Uh, it was like journalism. It was like being, a, you know, on a newspaper, except you're doing a drama series. So it was quite, uh, kept us on our toes. And Jan, our fantastic director, had the foresight, didn't he, to take out cameras <laughs> when the pandemic started. And was he in Milan or was he in Rome? I'm trying to remember. And he shot some of the most beautiful images of the empty cities. Not necessarily for this particularly, but... Yeah, he, he had taken a drone and he'd gone around Milan when it was deserted and shot all these images that exactly what Emily said, we ended up using them in the show because that, that's exactly what we wanted. He goes, oh, I have them. I, I, what, why'd you do that? Well, I just, you know, how often do you see Milan empty? I decided to go and, and photograph it. So, uh, that was really fortunate. It's, it's quite striking you can imagine, see an incredibly busy city like Milan that's always full of people. And at the beginning of our show, it's just empty streets. It's really haunting. And actually, I, I was in Rome during lockdown in 2021, in March and April. And, you know, it wasn't completely deserted, but, you know, there were, all the restaurants were shut. People were staying indoors. And at that time, I was living in Paris. And the, the contrast between the two cities was really striking to see how the Italians really respected the lockdown and did not go out. And, and of course, we were filming during that. And thank goodness we were able to continue and never never got shut down by the virus, unlike many others. Um, and how do you sort of approach generally the, the writing of Devils? Because it sounds incredibly complex because you've obviously got the finance side and then keeping up to date with, date with covid is it one of the most sort of challenging writing processes that you that you've ever you ever experienced? It is. I mean, every show is hard. Every show is hard. If you know, if you do anything well, it's going to be hard. You're going to be pushing yourself and challenging yourself for sure. But just in terms of a concept that is difficult to execute, I can't imagine anything much harder than Devils, especially for me, because I, honestly, I'm not a financial guy. I don't really read the financial news. I don't really understand how it works. We have this brilliant guy called Guido Brera who had written a novel called. Devils that this series is based on or inspired by. And Guido is one of the most successful hedge fund traders in Europe. So he knows this world inside out. And so we are constantly like dramatizing and then calling Guido, Guido, does this make sense? Guido, is this right? You know, trying to make sure that it is, you know, accurate. And I have to say, I mean, that is one of the things that's really satisfying about the show, both the first season and the second season, is that you can talk to people who work in the city, you can talk to people who are experts in this. And the, it's, you know, it's not a documentary, but they'll say, I think we get it as right as any TV drama has ever gotten it right. I mean, it's pretty close to the the way things actually work. And I would say one of the really toughest challenges, which is easy for me because I step back and, and read all the stuff that the amazing writers write, but that one of the really hard challenges is to find that emotion within all of the really tricky, complicated, complex finance world. And we had James Dormer, who was um, co-exec with, with us on the show, and he was fantastic at finding and digging in and, and looking for the, the emotional character moments. And our other brilliant writers, um, Naomi Gidney and Caroline Henry, and it just, it, it, it worked because we had Guido's sort of guidance and understanding the complicated financial elements of it. But we were always wanting to ask ourselves if we understood it on a sort of an emotional front and what those journeys were for each of the characters as they sort of go through this sort of much bigger experience. And so the team, I think, worked really hard in the writer's room. Yeah, definitely. And I should say, James, my first job when I came to the UK, which will be 12 years this uh, summer, 
Hammer was working on a show called Strike Back for Sky. It was sort of rebooting Strike Back because Richard Armitage was leaving and they needed two new characters to edit the show. And so I, I wrote the first four episodes of the reboot. And after I left, I was watching it and there was this guy, James Dormer, who wrote these really good Strike Back episodes. And I thought, you know, Strike Back is it's actually, it's a very specific tone. And he, he just, he knew how to get the humor and the camaraderie of these two guys. And uh, I called him up out of nowhere and, and said, you know, I just like your writing. I'd really like to work with you. And he said, oh, that'd be great. It took, I don't know what it was, nine years when Emily and I finally got to work with him on season three of Medici, also for our Italian partners at Lux Vida. And then we were able to, to get him back for um, for Devils. He's just a great collaborator and uh, and incredibly versatile. I wondered what the, the challenges and opportunities are of working in a sort of multilingual international co-production. Obviously, you've got Lux Vida who, who are Italian um, and, and how that works. It's very challenging, even with a partner like Lux Vida, which, you know, we've done how many seasons of TV we've done with them. This this was, is our sixth season of television because we did three of Medici, one of Leonardo, and uh, now we've done two of Devils, and we're, we're at work developing season three of Devils already. So even a relationship like that, which has been you know wildly successful by by any measure, it's just challenging. It's challenging because you are, are from different cultures, and and to complicate things even more, I'm an American at a British Russian company working with an Italian company, and there are cultural touch points and sensitivities and awarenesses of different audiences that you need to be mindful of you need to be humble and go i don't know everything you know just because i've done it successfully in one country doesn't mean i know how to do it here and you've got to share some decisions and you've got to you know compromise and i personally find it very hard to compromise <laughs> it's like if i think it's right I, I have a hard time making a decision that i think is going to um, make it less good and fortunately that hasn't happened much uh with lux which means we need to come to a, uh, a meeting of the minds you know we have to both feel good about the decision we're making. And then, you know, we're dealing with um, Italian broadcaster who is speaking to our partner a lot more than us because they both share the same language and, and, and uh, relationships and so on. So it's complicated in a million ways, but it's incredibly rewarding. I mean, it's just it's just thrilling and exciting to work in a country other than your own and to get to know it. And the Italian crews are extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. They're artists, they're just beautiful work, a delight to work with, and lovely people. And then, of course, the privilege of shooting in Italy, you know, one of the most beautiful countries in the world and, and just endlessly rich and, and rewarding. So I just feel so lucky to have had this experience. So yeah, it's 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 not for the faint of heart, but for those who can do it, it's a lot of a uh, lot of benefits to it. Um, and with dramas becoming increasingly expensive, are co-productions the only viable way to to fund new ideas now? Do you think? And and what other financing models are emerging? It's such an interesting question because I think if you had if you'd asked me this a year ago, I would say, boy, streamers are ascendant. All the traditional broadcasters are really struggling. And I think I think what's happening is streamers are ascendant. Streamers aren't going anywhere. Thank goodness. Streamers have been fantastic for our business and they've just breathed tons of not just money, but vitality, creativity, diversity, uh, professionalism into our business. I mean, you could write a whole article about the effect the streamers are having on the way television is made around the world, you know, outside the United States. But I think people are realizing, you know, the terrestrial broadcasters are really important and they're not going anywhere. And they have their challenges for sure. Many of them, you know, have allowed their audiences to get, you know, old. And, and they've missed generations of viewers and they need to find ways to plug into the younger viewers. But, you know, they keep the business vital, connected to local territories, to audiences in those territories. And I think uh, increasingly people are recognizing the value of doing shows with uh, terrestrial broadcasters. I think you tend not to think of giant scale shows if you're going to do it with terrestrial broadcasters. Even the co-productions we've done, their budgets are generous by traditional standards, for sure. They are big shows, but they're not Game of Thrones big. You know, They're big on, uh, at a certain scale. And I don't think you would ever try to do something, you know, Game of Thrones or Man in the High Castle big in this model. Mm -hmm. But there's many, many other ambitious shows that you can still do uh, as co-productions between terrestrials uh, like Leonardo, uh, like Medici, and do really well. Um, but again, aside from working with your producing partner, that you've also the complication of serving multiple audiences if you're doing a co-production with three territories, which um, these shows were. 
and uh, and and multiple uh, broadcasters that that increases the complexity of the challenge enormously. And I think that there is a there is a really interesting way of looking at uh, funding shows at the moment, and I do think that's developing. And I think that people are very open to different funding models. There's a number of private financing um, opportunities at the moment that are sort of coming to the fore, and I, it's interesting for, for me the the Netflix idea of the um, subscriptions sort of going down it makes it more relevant continuing to bring out the content and continuing to bring out new content and I think that when you consider what we want to do is tell stories that can come back and return I think that's where you look towards the more terrestrial channels where you can grow a story you can continue to come back you can develop that over series and series Whereas you might be looking for those splashier driving subscriptions for that first series when you're thinking about the platforms. But I think it's just a really exciting and interesting time, and especially with Big Lights, because we have this, you know, really (laughs) fantastic, unique um, viewpoint where we're working in the UK, we're working in Europe and we're working in the States. And so it does feel for us, um, maybe more so than the other production companies, I, I don't know, but it feels for us as though our ambition has allowed that world to open up and have those sort of various different funding models open to us. And so it, it's exciting for us at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and just to pick, pick up on Emily's point, I don't see a lot of other British producers looking as much to Europe as we do. There's many that will go to the US for money, of course, because the US has a lot of money. But I'm often surprised that more more of our colleagues don't uh, do not do this. We, we, know, we look to Europe a lot. We have quite a lot of experience now work there. So it, we do look through 360 degrees as a company. You touched on, Emily, the, the slump in subscribers for Netflix, but you don't think that's a, a kind of concern for the streaming landscape or for producers like Big Light? Um, I don't want to sound too, get too political at, <laughs> at this point, but no, I think that the bigger concerns for us as British um, producers is more looking at the privatisation of Channel 4 and more looking at the subscription for BBC. I think that is going to change the landscape not necessarily in a particularly positive way to start with. Um, So no, I think Netflix have clearly got a very strong business model. I think that they're going to continue to make some of the most exciting drama. And I love what they're doing. And I think Frank mentioned it a minute ago, but looking at their own territories and making sure filmmakers, actors, writers in those territories are allowing their voices to be heard. And I think that is awesome. And, And the more we can spread their voices around the world the better so I no, I, I don't think so and one of the other sort of hot topics if you like in in the tv industry at the moment is talent and being able to to secure talent just wondered how um big light is you know you're you're securing big name talent when there's such competition yeah I mean it, it's really challenging now like you know it used to be if you're casting a big role the casting director would send you seven or eight pages of actors and now it's like two or three pages of actors and if you don't land them quickly you know next week they're gone they're doing some other show it's super competitive but I think you know look it's great it's great it means people are working it means there's a lot of TV being made and it means you better have a great project if you want to land that actor and, get, and persuade them to do yours I think two things I think the movie business has sadly collapsed to a large extent and this this habit of attaching and creating packages in order to sell that was a movie strategy you know for decades has seeped into our industry into the TV industry and I, I think that is unfortunate I think it's making the process more political and deal driven and less about the script and just quality so I, I, I I'm sad about that but I think it's also showing you our, our industry needs to continue to grow and open the doors and and bring in more talent and more diverse talent in particular, which has long been one of the big problems with our industry. It's It's been woefully inadequate and still is, but it also shows you don't always need a big star. You don't always need a big name. I mean, some of the best shows on TV in the last few years, I May Destroy You, or It's a Sense. Like, I didn't know any of these actors before they were on TV. So, you know, some some shows need a big name to anchor them. Many, many do not. And uh, that's the other great thing about the TV age we're living in right now. There's just so much TV being made a lot of those projects are bound to have newcomers and um, you know that's long overdue um, and then you've got some
some exciting news. You've signed a first look deal with Tomorrow Studios. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what, what the deal entails? So Tomorrow Studios is headed by uh, Marty Adelstein and Becky Clements. And um, I've known Marty for a long time. And he's really a giant, you know, in Hollywood. He, he, you know, he was an amazing agent before he became an amazing executive and producer. And Marty just has an unbelievable uh, skill set. And, uh, and, and is also like a great guy to work with. He's just a lot of fun to work with and funny and you know we're in we're in Europe and Marty's in Hollywood and it just feels like an incredibly synergistic relationship because um, we can draw on our relationships and knowledge of both markets which we do routinely like Emily and I are always talking about you know what's happening here and they're talking to us about what's happening there and share resources and so you know it's got off to sort of a galloping start it also for us as a company it allows us to develop a lot more than we've ever been able to develop so it's really supercharged our slate yeah no, I was going to feed into that actually and say we're working um, alongside Marty's partner, Becky Clements. And so with Marty and Becky and their team, we just have, you know, it's just the most exciting conversations every, you know, whenever we're catching up and we're looking for really interesting dramas that will work um, either in America or that are going to work over in the UK and Europe. And it's allowing us to speak to the writers that we adore and we want to be working with because we're absolutely fundamentally a writer-led company <laughs> by virtue of Frank being the owner of our company. Um, and it's it's allowing the writers to say, well, what do you want to write now? Because we want to work with you. And it's, it's finding that creative space um, to be able to do that. So it, it's a really exciting prospect for us. Are there any sort of specific genres that the two companies are particularly looking at? You know, it's funny because Emily and I, like, we love all genres. And, you know, the market will tell you, well, don't do this, don't do that. And we're like, yeah, but it's great. We, you know, we, we want to do it anyway. So <laughs> we do. We do. And you end up selling a lot of those. A lot of the ones they go, nah, but yeah, but then you do it. They go, oh, well, that one we want, you know. So uh, we try not not to um, be too discouraged by the uh, you know people licking their finger and holding it up in the wind to see what they're going to make uh, or too influenced by that. I think for me, the way I would say it is, you know, we're always looking for shows that are about something that they're entertaining for sure. They're engaging. You know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be totally gripped by it while you're watching it. But I would like it to be that after it's over, there's something worth thinking about. Uh, you're glad you saw it. That was a good investment of your time, especially now when there's so much TV that, even the good shows, they don't tend to stick in my memory very long. It's like, what have you seen? Oh yeah, I've seen so much. I actually can't remember much that I've seen. And, and we don't, you know, it's so easy to sort of get lost in the churn now of TV. And we're looking for shows that don't do that. You know, things that are really distinctive and, and that we love. And also, you know, as you know, if you're a producer, this is years of your life you're committing to spend on this. You know, often years of development before you even get to production. So it has to be something you really love. Frank Spotnitz and Emily Feller speaking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 